Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Ian Gaines. Now, some of you might know Ian from his work at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, Black Bitcoin Billionaires, and so many other references and articles that he's written and just following along on social media. And for those that don't know Ian, I'm really excited to share this episode with you because he's such a wealth of knowledge about policy work in D.C., about Bitcoin for marginalized communities. And we get into the history of some of these experiences that folks in this country have faced and being just unbanked and unfair mortgage loans and just so many, so many different avenues. And this conversation went all over the place. We talked about free speech. We talked about progressive ideals and traditional left and some of those values and why these things are really, really important in light of Bitcoin. Um, Really enjoyed chatting with Ian. uh, And thank you so much, Ian, for coming on the show. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. And as always, please feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments. You can reach me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And huge shout out to our sponsor, Bitbox. And be sure to check out our referral links as well for SAS Mining and Jason Meyer's book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin through Bitcoin Magazine. All right, I'll let you all get it to the episode. um, And we'll see you all again next week. Hi, Ian, and welcome to The Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? I'm good, Trey. It's an absolute pleasure being here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, excited to have this conversation. And and folks, we started getting into some stuff before recording, and we were like, we got to jump on and start recording this. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm super excited to have, have you on um, and to talk about some of the things we're going to get into. But before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself to people, um, maybe talk about some of the projects and things that you've you've done and where your focus area is in terms of Bitcoin and education, things like that. Right. So this is probably the first time that uh, people are uh, getting to know me. So I'll I'll start from the beginning, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, my Bitcoin journey. And everybody has a a Bitcoin journey. And mine was like 2012, actually. I was in in college. Wow. I didn't know it was that early. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was in Chicago. And that story is is wild in its own sense because (laughs) it was almost like a, a fever dream, like a guy like kicks not kick down the door but he like busts through he's just like have you guys heard about bitcoin is a distributed <laughs> like ledger technology that is beyond government reach and just censorship mm. resistant it's transparent it's fully accessible like it's 24 7 on and it's works on democratic consensus and we're just like whoa, whoa, whoa. you're <laughs> like are of, you okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those this is 2012 and I was just like, well, if this is something that's real, uh, it's very interesting prospects there. So I was kind of just watching until around, I would say 2016 is when I was like, oh, okay, this might, it might have some legs, right? It's, it's getting some institutional, not adoption, but at least attention. Um, and, um, and just more of a, a, a cultural uh, phenomenon. And that's where my mind sort of goes between, okay, uh, institutions, where they're looking at it, the individuals, communities, um, and I, I thought this was something. Um, and then we can get into uh, Black Bitcoin, you know, billionaires. That was the first time that I really started to, to write from the perspective uh, of marginalized communities, right? Uh, and what they offer to this new technology and what this technology offers uh, to them. Um, and so ever since then, just 
writing and then getting into policy and advocating on, on Capitol Hill for uh, blockchain technology and, and in particular, Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And you, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, some of your more formal education is kind of in the poli-sci realm. Is that right? So so kind of politics is kind of the the angle that you like to approach these these conversations or one of the angles you like to approach. Yeah. So I... I think, you know, if we look at the castle, you need to have people who are outside with the signs working and you need people on the inside at the table, you know, saying the same exact message. You know, it, it needs to be on, on both ends because it, I think a lot of uh, the, the, the influence uh, becomes lost if you don't have you know both sides so i think policy does a a good way of incorporating what people want and their needs and their desires and making sure it's getting at the table mm, yeah and one thing i'm excited to talk to you about too um one of the conversations i want to get into about so you know this podcast and for those that have been listening for a while or if you're new here you know we focus on things that are quote unquote, important to progressive values, but we also kind of flip it on, on its head, right? Like Bitcoin mining could actually be good for the environment. You know, Bitcoin could be good for marginalized communities who are unbanked. Like these kinds of conversations to help A, educate people on Bitcoin, but also talk about things that are really important to um, a lot of folks, but particularly folks on the left, right? And one conversation, I don't think we've had in a particular ways, at least since the, the relaunch, Mark may have had it um, in, in previous episodes, is talking about marginalized communities in the United States. Um, I think by the time of this recording, the the our episode with uh, Farida Nabarema would have come out about Togo and citizens in Africa, and those are super important conversations. And this is an important conversation too. Talking about marginalized communities in the U.S., talking about the unbanked in the U.S., and talking about the social movement of financial inclusion that is Bitcoin. So can you touch on some of that from from your perspective and some of your passion and you know reason you're you're into Bitcoin focusing on that that community in terms of the US and obviously it's a diverse community in and of itself there's so many different marginalized communities in the US but the unbanked you know why is why is Bitcoin and why are we even talking about these things in this context and why is that important to you Yeah great question um I think uh, specifically for you know underserved communities here in America, we have a very deep relationship with institutional uh, unchecked authority, right, and and and, and power, um, especially in the financial uh, institutions and the and monetary systems. So. You know, I mean, in the the book, which I'm sure we're we're going to talk to, um, that we're I'm writing a chapter in, and it's uh, analysis on Bitcoin's impact on U.S. national security interests. But also, there's a portion. My chapter is Bitcoin empowerment, right? And how might Bitcoin impact minority rights and uh, social economic outcomes at home, right? Uh, and abroad, but a focus uh, domestically. And the lost in trust from these communities, you know, I, we, we're asking the question, it's like when we look at uh, cryptocurrency in general, 44% of the people in America who own cryptocurrency are people of color, right? 30% of Black investors 
own cryptocurrency versus only 18% of white investors. So uh, where does this disproportionate adoption come from? You know, that, that might not be intuitive to, to some. Um, but, you know, <laughs> growing up here in America, it like for me and especially people at uh, BBB, we're like, duh, because learning a lesson early from the inception of, you know, freedom in, in America is that the only system that you can reliably trust is one that's completely removed from personal subjectivity, right? That's, that is the, the ethos that many communities have learned the hard way of what unchecked power is. And then, so for example, in 1865, this Federal Savings Bank is Freeman Savings Bank, uh, was established specifically for former slaves, right? And in 10 years, uh, African Americans were able to have gross $75 million, right? At that time, which in today's money will be $5 billion worth of wealth that was in the Freedman Savings Bank. And you know what happened? <laughs> the money managers there put it in, you know, high-risk railroad speculations, uh, put it into other uh, risky real estate uh, programs and, and, and projects and lost all of that money <laughs> within 10 years. And, and then it closed down, right? So, the, you know, I, I say like that was the moment where specifically Black Americans had their trust broken and uh, legacy institutions, right? And, and then, you know, 60 years later, you know, we go into redlining um, where officials, you know, this is all government policy where they will draw lines on the maps uh, of high risk, you know, areas, right? for receiving loans. So in those areas, you have to have, you know, you have to pay higher interest rates, you know, for loans. And they were also targeted uh, for, you know, when it comes to a tax revenue going to education and, you know, property and, and upkeep, uh, it found ways to miss these communities <laughs> who are disproportionately Black and immigrant, right? So, you know, 1865, Freedman Savings Bank, redlining, then to the subprime loans, you know, uh, where, you know, it, <laughs> if you, I think the book is uh, the, the Color of Money, um, and, it, and it shows that uh, specifically like Wells Fargo, right, they had campaigns where they targeted Black churches uh, for... Uh, subprime loans, where during the you know 2008 financial crisis and the subprime loan uh, arena, where um, over 50% of the African Americans who receive subprime loans actually qualify for prime loans, but they didn't know and they were targeted. And so much in the you know the depositions and when the eternal uh, documents, the emails were released between employees. You know, employee employees were calling uh, subprime loans ghetto loans, right? 
and their black customers as mud people. And I'm give I want to make this very visceral. So <laughs> to show where, you know, the lack of trust, the erosion of trust comes from, right? It's it's no illusions, no fantasies. Like <laughs> this is, you know, this is lived experience. Um and that permeates to the decisions uh, today. Um, so in that context, <laughs> Black Americans was always looking for an alternative to the current system, uh, one that, that's free from central uh, actors, which is, you know, the, as I say, the subjectivity, the subjective whims of a human of human because all human beings from any background they're going to have a certain perspective they're going to have certain preconceptions they're going to have certain interests uh and if in the control a portion of that will as i say permeate into decision making into systems into institutions right how come if you know me and you if we go and to get a loan, and we're business owners, we have the went to the same college, uh, have the same credit score, all metrics comparable. I, on average, and here in America, as a black business owner, have to pay 1.4% higher in interest rates than my comparable white counterpart. Where is this pri uh, proprietary system <laughs> and calculations of saying, Okay, well, yeah, you got the similar credit score, background, and income, but uh, it's showing in our system that you are at higher risk. So we we have to higher financial risk. So we have to increase the interest rates for you with this other person with the same, you know, credentials and criteria. No, it's lower, you know. Um, so I think from in in this uh, sort of discussion. I'm not saying anything that progressives don't already know <laughs> the, the, the failings of, of this system. So my advocation uh, a lot of times on, on Capitol Hill is telling those stories, like starting from, okay, this historical context. We all see the, the, the problems and inequities uh, that exist today. All right, what are some viable solutions? And this solution needs to have certain criteria. <laughs> and what we've come to, the, the, the Black community and other marginalized communities is like, man, we can't trust them. <laughs> we can't trust it. Just humans in general. We can't trust. We can't trust. You haven't, haven't given, and at no point in history have you given us a reason to trust your integrity <laughs> and your decision making. And that is not use in self-interest or to, to suppress uh, the, the, the freedom, the autonomy of uh, certain citizens. And, uh, and that goes beyond race. It goes beyond uh, social economic standing. It's, it's, it's many Americans. Um, so yeah, that's what we uh, sort of advocate for. And I think really is communicating and I, I would love to hear from you is the the disconnect because a lot of times in staffers when I we, we talk about like the Lightning Network right um, and its ability to 
save uh, small businesses on interchange fees, right? Um, you know, uh, MasterCard and, and Visa and all money processors, um, businesses, U.S. merchants spend about $105 billion on solely interchange fees, right? And of that, um, and we, we're probably going to get into like the, the, the work I'm, I'm, I'm doing now, just, you know, talking to universities and getting the research of, okay, how much doing a comparative analysis, how much could we save small businesses or businesses from uh, specific communities just by using the Lightning Network and, you know, to remove that intermediary, you know, who is siphoning, extracting <laughs> uh, the, the revenue, right? Um, and, you know, just doing base calculations, Black, you know, business owners pay anywhere between 12 to 16 billion in, you know, fees. Just think about that with, you know, Lightning Network, where it's instant peer-to-peer uh, payments, no intermediary, globally acceptable, borderless, um, and you can send it, you know, with a penny or less, you know, depending on like the network fees at the time, but it's a penny or less versus, you know, a MasterCard who charges, what, 1.8%, you know? Um, and just think about that saving, saving billions <laughs> for, you say in specific, I want to get highly specific with, you know, ethnographic research and say, hey, black business owners could save whatever, 12 billion dollars a year just by changing, you know, the the money processing system, right? And think about what you can do with that extra 10 billion back, uh, redistributed back into the communities. Um, this is, <laughs> it, it goes so many, wait, I don't want to monopolize the, the the time, but I'm, I'm giving you the, the You're full the guest, scope. <laughs> so please do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, so these are I, I think the areas that if you are a researcher, if you're at any research institutions that focus on the societal impact right, of um, innovative technologies, like this is what policymakers are, are looking for. What's the human impact? And I think um, a lot of times in the Bitcoin community, it kind of gets lost because we, a lot of us is uh, tech-minded, and that's a, a, a specific type of disposition. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the techie. Or like yeah. so macro-focused, right, that you're mm -hmm. thinking about El Salvador volcano bonds, you know, and not right. thinking about small business all the time, or these practical conversations, yeah. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, hedge fund managers, so like it, it, it's the it's the type of perspective, and that is valuable in a certain context, right? Um, what, but for you know the average everyday American, um, and also business owner, um, sort of staffer, you know, congressman, th they have to make it real 
tangible here? <laughs> like, okay, how does this uh, affect my life today? I, why should why should I jump through so many hoops? It feels like I have to jump through a lot of hoops. Explain to me why actually this is kind of a seamless pop, process. <laughs> you know, you know, download a certain certain apps and you know, just getting a, a digital wallet, right, and a cold storage wallet. You know, we that's that that's you know a fifteen minute conversation. Um, but you have to bring it down to, to earth. And um, when speaking to staffers, you know, the biggest thing is like find use cases, right? That's what they ask. It's like find us the use cases of, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain, how it has, you know, an ability to, you know, provide more freedom, right? Um, and, and, and what ways is this helping communities? Uh, so these stories are important. Look at um, from BBB, Kim, uh, the BTC impact, right? It was an amazing um, idea where um, they have a S9, S8 project where she's working with, you know, local officials. And I love to get back because it's probably not even S9s anymore. Is you know, <laughs> this the type of miner the minor yeah. S9 miners. Uh, yeah. So they probably upgraded the, the miners, but just the concept, I'm just giving concepts that are scalable and reproducible. Um, it's like working with Section 8 housing right? and having Bitcoin mines in Section 8 housing and, you know, have a program where, where tenants, you know, who are, are staying in Section 8, they can build wealth, you know, <laughs> have these miners. Right? And then they won't be able to touch it in something like, you know, you know, 12 months or 18 months. Like you can't take out. But, you know, after the 18 months, like you can take that out and put that towards maybe home ownership. So finding self-sustainable programs, because that's that's the only thing that will continue. Right. A, a top down approach. As I gave the examples before has failed us, right? Has has failed our communities. So the people who are going to care about the communities are the ones living in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they hate to be cynical, but we're talking about human nature. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to expect another person to care much uh, about uh, my home that they're not living in, right? <laughs> my right, parts right. that their kids are not going to, mm -hmm. right? And then yep. paying taxes it. Right. It, it's very hard to try to convince a human being. So now those who whose hearts are are are, are open and, and understand that all tides, uh, you know, tides lift all boats, that principle, then 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 we are together and, and in this, you know, in, in this journey. But, you know, that's not something to, to expect. So to have grassroots, you know, programs. And, and I'm saying all of these because I hope for like listeners, if, you know, researchers, um, congressmen, staffers, right. Those who are working in, you know, companies, these are their concepts that can be reproduced. Um, and, um, a lot of conversation is, is happening about implementing, um, and this and uh, research is it's super important. 
social science research, societal impact. How is Bitcoin, how is distributed ledger technology impacting communities? Because that's mm. going to drive further policy. That's going to drive the needle. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use. And it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Um, but one of the things you mentioned too, and obviously in the Bitcoin world, we know this, but one of the, I don't want to get too poetic, but one of the like beautiful things about it and the protocol in general is this, this trust word. I think for people, you say like in the black community in other marginalized community throughout history in the U S if you can describe to them and have them understand, there's not really trust required here in the same way you have to trust your local credit union or the same way you have to trust your landlord or the same way you have to trust these different institutions that typically are not very trustworthy. There's not trust. It's this, this open protocol and it's done and in, in, infused in different ways. Right. And you can kind of choose different companies and trade-offs and different ways to do it. Right. But it's this open permissionless. You don't have to trust, um, in mm -hmm. the same way. Sometimes there's trust in certain companies that are implementing it and things like that. So I know people say it's completely trustless and it's like, well, it depends because there's a little bit of a learning curve depending on what you're doing. And, you know, a bit of a critique for politicians on the left. I think a lot of politicians on the left, let's, let's assume and say they're well-meaning. They mm. want to work with those institutions that you've described. Let's say Wells Fargo. They want to work with Wells Fargo to create programs that focused on marginalized communities. That's a huge hurdle to jump over first off, right? Is understanding what are their motivations? What actually is this going to look like at the end of the day? Is this just like a false ESG flag in a way, right? But but for this marginalized community or their community, you still have to trust, right? Maybe there's someone at Wells Fargo that really cares and gets it and comes from that community and actually did the good work. But you still have to trust that that's actually going to happen, right? And many of these politicians can be vehemently against, either neutral or against, this open protocol that doesn't require trust, right? Well, using Elizabeth Warren, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Focusing so much on the bank sector and wants to regulate banks, but now is working with banks on their own regulation and regulating against crypto, it's completely backwards um, in, in a way. So I think what you're saying is beautiful and being able to translate that to people in practical ways is really important. I completely agree. Can, can you tell me what's the disconnect? I would like to hear from your uh, perspective of, you know, we, we talk about Bitcoin enabling greater access to all people, all Americans. And, and that seems like a, a value that is strongly held by sort of progressive, uh, you know, leading individuals. So, but the narrative is, is different, is a little pushback, is a, is a hesitance. Um, from your perspective, where do you see that disconnect? Because I, I think it's like, wow, this is perfect. This is something that should be easily embraced <laughs> like, and love and taken as like, oh, finally, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what do you see there? 
I mean, I, I think it starts with privilege. I think it's one of the first things. And what I love about doing this podcast or even preparing to to do this in general is just the the amount of conversations I'm able to have with people from Costa Rica, from Togo, like I was mentioning with Farida, with yourself, with Justin, with so many other folks that come from different backgrounds than I do. And I bring my own thoughts and backgrounds. Like I come from a more rural, conservative socioeconomically poor environment in Southwest corner of Virginia. So I bring my own thoughts to this as well from, from that. Um, so I, I think it starts with a place of privilege, right? So a lot of people that are not, are let's say vehemently against this, it usually starts off with their own privilege and assumptions. And, and that is that assumption piece is at least 50% of it as well. Like, okay, Bitcoin is this, like we assume, and we're going to say, we know what's best for you community X, Y, Z, and we're going to protect you from getting harmed. We're going to be the, in some cases, white savior, right? So, so I think that is a huge part of it, uh, in, in my opinion, is the assumption piece and then a place of privilege, right? And, you know, I love, it. I mean, they're hard conversations, but talking with conversations about global colonialism, right? It's kind of the mm-hmm. same concept. Like, how, how do we do this in micro ways as well? And I approach things from a sociological lens as well. That was my kind of background before Bitcoin Um, and then still involved with nonprofits to this day. So interacting with communities are typically left out in my nonprofit work, thinking about things through a sociological lens. You know, I think it's super complicated. I think it starts there. Um, I, I think, and if I'm being really honest with you too, I think some folks in the Bitcoin community specifically have perpetuated a bit of, um, whether it's right-wing talking points, whether it's it's things that have nothing to do with actually Bitcoin and what we're getting at. Again, Eat my own personal opinions. And, <laughs> right, right. And I, I don't want to yeah. overstate it, but I don't want to understate it as well. I think, I think that's a play as well. And one of the reasons I'm passionate about speaking for left views within Bitcoin because people in, in the real world have those assumptions as well, right? A lot of people just don't know anything about it. Some people have those assumptions that it's for right-wing, stake-eating, whatever. Um, and then some people think it's boiling your oceans, all of these other yeah. things. So there's a lot of FUD against it. You got to start with re-educating people. Um, but I mean, also at the end of the day, your guess is as good as mine in terms of like true disconnect. I think for everyone, it's individual. Like where is Elizabeth Warren's disconnect? I don't know. I mean, I know she has a nice house in Cambridge, uh, you know, r- right by where, where I live in Massachusetts. I know she's held assumptions. I know she's been a Senator for a really long time. I know she's got certain book deals. I know she's got certain donors. Mm-hmm. Um, I in, mean, in banking, he's th- he's <laughs> things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Um, <laughs> you know, one day will, will she change her mind? I, I doubt it, but maybe right. Um, different people enter into it in different ways. Um, so not to drone on to too mm-hmm. much on that, but I think, mm-hmm. For me, just going back to like privilege and assumption, right? And the people who are going to get Bitcoin first or are the ones who need it most. Right. And most, most Americans, when you look at globally, mm-hmm. do not need Bitcoin in the same way, right? We have right. PayPal, Venmo. We could talk about that too in terms of fees. Those fees mm-hmm. are outrageous for, for mm-hmm. small businesses. But there are some communities in the US that would greatly benefit from Bitcoin. Obviously, we think everyone would and the world would but some would benefit more than others. So if you're someone who is even listening, you know, a friend, because right now I think we have a lot of progressives and Bitcoiners mm-hmm. listening, but um, 
you know, I think one thing that probably will happen as always happens is the bull run comes, you'll get more listeners and then it'll die off again mm -hmm. in the cycles, you know, that, that kind of thing. So if you're listening, cause someone passed it on to you, you're in a place of privilege and you're saying, well, Bitcoin's not good because X, Y, Z first ask yourself, do you, do you see that you need it? Like, where are you in this socioeconomic ladder? Um, and how do you view it based on that? That's some of your own assumptions going into it as well. Yeah. I mean, looking at, you know, hyperinflation in places like Lebanon and, and Argentina, where they, people are fleeing to get out of their, their currency into a, a, a currency more stable, right? And using Bitcoin, you know, hyperinflation, 20% inflation, 30%. I think in the last four years, like Lebanon has, you know, lost over 90% of its purchasing power. As, you know, checking as Alex Gladstein, you know, checking your financial privilege is like here in America, <laughs> we're, we're arguing about, okay, we're getting this 8% inflation down to two, back down to two. And now we're hovering around the 3% and it's killing us. <laughs> it's kicking all of our ass in America. But think about 25% yearly inflation, 25% of your purchasing power just evaporating. Yeah. Hey. I mean, think about there's a video I saw as well and not condoning this in any fashion, but there's there's been many videos like this, but there's a man who went into a bank in Lebanon. The bank was just not open. They're like, no, you can't get your money. And he had a Molotov cocktail. Like imagine oh, I saw that. Mm -hmm. the amount of despair that you feel. Like for us, it's like we even have FDIC. So worst case right now, again, I, I, I want to be realistic about this because some in the Bitcoin community say it can collapse tomorrow. We're heading for that all could happen. I'd say the odds of that are like 1% right now, right? Prove me wrong in a year. I'm not, I'm not sure, right? But relatively speaking, we also have the FDIC. So you might have to wait in some long lines <laughs> should something happen again. But usually you can, you can get your money out or you can disperse your money if you're wealthy throughout multiple um, different avenues for that insurance. But imagine being so desperate and so much despair, and I don't know this individual's circumstances, that, that you feel like you have to go and, and try to attack this, this bank because you're like, I need my money. Like I, I could die tomorrow. Like I need this. And, mm -hmm. and we, don't, we don't have a worldview for thinking about that. For me, I can only try my best to imagine what that would feel like. I don't know what that would feel yeah. like. If I need to withdraw money, it's a click of a button. Sure, there might be some processing time, whatever, I also have some Bitcoin. So there's not processing time in the same way, right? We just have so many different resources. So it's hard to understand for people. Right. So, I mean, that's unstable economies um, in the global landscape, um, but then also living under authoritarian regimes. Like we have the privilege of, you know, living in a somewhat democratic republic, republic, <laughs> right? Um, and having uh, a level of, of representation. But, you know, looking in uh, like Nigeria, you know, the NSARS movement where, you know, the social activists were, you know, taking the, to the streets and protesting against police brutality. The president goes to the the national banks and say, oh, all the accounts of the social leaders shut off their accounts and can do that. Trudeau in Canada, well, we think that's mind blow um, blowing. And uh, I would love to hear progressives take on that, <laughs> uh, you know, with the trucker movement, right? And, and, and setting, shutting down, you know, payments to uh, truckers and, and accounts. So like 
these, you know, this is this is not, you know, a place of science fiction. <laughs> this is this is real world sort of actions being taken place uh, from you know different you know authorities, right? And and then thinking about okay, what is the what what is an alternative to protect my property, right? Property rights, right? Um, a lot of people, you know, vote with their, you know, their wallets. Okay. Going back to the social movement is, you know, how that ended is they went out to Twitter and all online and say, Hey, if you want this social movement to continue, send us money in Bitcoin sent over around $180,000, you know, and they was able to continue their movement because that's what censorship resistant means. That means like even when a uh, authority actor wants to stop, reverse, block a transaction, there's no entity that can censor your payments, your peer-to-peer payments. And that has a a power to that Um, when we talk about, you know, bringing back the, the, the will to the popular sovereignty, right? Individual rights. Um, and these are all, you know, principles that was largely, if not birth, it was championed here in America, right? These Western, you know, values, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, property rights. Uh, privacy is not one, but <laughs> it's something that here in America we value, right? Um, so what is looking at what are the networks that are representation of those values here in America. Yeah, and I've got, by the time of this recording, it'll be out in one fashion or another, but one of the other things I'm concerned about is I wrote an article on how even things like privacy, freedom of speech, these kind of things have been a bit co-opted by the right and also mm-hmm. opposed by the left by saying, oh, if you say I'm a free speech maximalist, that means you're a right-wing nut. Let's get and into it, Trey. <laughs> it drives <laughs> me it. <laughs> nuts. And I, I will say almost every time I talk to someone from a historically marginalized group in the US, it is a very like, uh, I'll just be frank, like a white liberal concept mm-hmm. that that we have these conversations. And when when you talked about it, just very plainly and and like it is. And one of my biggest frustrations too, and so I'm thinking about, okay, the way the left perceives Bitcoin. All right, let, let, let me try to make some strides in the way the left perceives privacy and free speech. And I am a huge, huge proponent of open protocols like Noster, which we can get into and, um, and things like that. But again, for marginalized communities, one thing you can do on Noster right now, it's a permissionless social media there's also the ability to transact in lightning known as zaps. And so if you need a, I know I've seen this on blue sky before I've seen this on Twitter where there's certain communities in the U S where there's like a call, like someone's like, Oh, I need, I need rent payments tomorrow because I was in an an abusive relationship and I was kicked out of my home and I need, so they kind of crowdfund through social media, but they're using like PayPal, Venmo, whatever. Let's Mm -hmm. say you're, you're living in a state where your community is is not popular in the government's eyes in that state, right? Whatever mm-hmm. it may be, they can shut down your PayPal. They can shut down your Venmo. They can shut down your causes movement, whether it's the trucker movement or whether it's Black Lives Matter or Planned Parenthood, whatever. Um, it shouldn't rely on can someone shut it down or not. So on Noster, people are crowdsourcing. 
through Bitcoin and no one can stop that, right? Mm -hmm. And even when they try to, there's different ways to get around it depending on what you're using in terms of mobile interface. So for me, I get very, very frustrated. It's very personal for me when either I hear folks on the left criticizing free speech or saying, oh, why do you need a private messaging app that's just for criminals? Or, oh, free speech is co-opted by Trumpers. It's like, no, it's not. First of all, it's free speech and name only. Fino, I like saying that now, trying to coin that word. I think it's funny with the the rhino term. Uh Yeah, so it's like, I I think Trump and many others are in Elon, uh, bigger than anyone I've seen is free speech and name only, (laughs) right? It's just different parties censor in their own ways, right? So people need to know that when we talk about free speech, when you're mentioning censorship, like you mentioned trucker movement, that's mm-hmm. going to trigger some people on the left because they think that was just absolutely ridiculous. That's fine. It is. What it is. <laughs> but but let's say that some other cause that you support, someone else thinks is ridiculous. Well, they still don't have a right to necessarily shut it down with some specific moments of criminality, breaking some sort of horrendous law and things like this. And even that, they just have to do good old-fashioned police work, which is a whole other conversation, right? Now they're trying to just blanket, well, we're just going to shut down your bank accounts. We can do that from an, our, our office desk. We don't even have to go out and do any police work anymore or investigative. We can just click a button and you're done, right? Mm-hmm. It's really scary. I mean, this is a, a maturity that I think is important for us all to consider is that the tools of oppression that we wield uh, against others, uh, know that those same tools will be used against you. So Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in positions of power now and you find ways to, you know, leverage, you know, and and, and mismanage your your power, uh, then Every four years, <laughs> every two years, uh, the tables are turned. And 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 when you speak about freedom of speech, uh, I mean, and now I guess I'm getting a little bit older, but I remember like this was the one of the principles that was strongly held and defended by left voices. You know, this is back when Republicans was, uh, you know running over uh, in, in trucks, um, NWA CDs, because it's like, oh, this yes. is going to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, corrupt the minds of our precious youth, you know? And, and it was, it was the, the liberal voices, it was progressive voices that said, no, this is freedom of speech. Uh, you know, these artists, these creatives are, are examining the, the environment around them and finding a creative way to, to flip and make a narrative and story. And, it, and you're living, you know, a, a life that, you know, is profane. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's how it is expressed. And the, this, these were the arguments, right? Um, and, and now a, a switch is saying, oh, these certain, we can't say, we can't, I mean, you 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 have the the freedom to speak and you have the freedom to be offended. <laughs> you can be offended. That's okay. But um, silencing um, is uh, not within your your right. Right. 
Um, and so just to see this, this, this shift and you're, you're right. I, I do talk plainly. So, you know, if, even if this is a bit abrasive, it's like, come on, we have to get to a point where we have honest conversations, where we take people, wherever tribes you come from and be like, Hey man, let me come over here. Let me get a little mm-hmm. beat, you know? You know you're kind of wild now. Okay, this is a little extra. <laughs> that's, that's what I tell my, you know, that's what I tell my homie. It's just yeah. like, man, you know I love you. You know I love you. I'm going to defend you. You know publicly. You know I'll be. I'm going to rock because we retire. Right. But no, it's kind of triple. Okay, do we have to go? Nah. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. let's rethink. Let's reconsider. You know that's what friends do. That's what people who care do. But you know to to have, um, you know a. A, a minority opinion, and this goes from all. Oh, this is outside of politics. This is, you know, this is this is cultural. This is policy. Just in, in ideas, whatever sort of tribal ideologies that uh, one subscribes to, and you know, and and, and try to think as an individual, <laughs> you know, actor, and say, okay, what does this mean to me? Okay, I understand people who I. Uh, you know, affiliates at a time and time that we may have some characteristics uh, that might be similar or general ideas or worldview and outlook uh, that that resonates. I agree, but you know what? I I do have some criticism. I do have some, you know, pause to thought and, and let's have hash out that conversation honestly and not, you know, be so hesitant and, and, and afraid to, to, to call out. And that's, that's all people. If we just, it comes back to having honest conversations. Like, is, is this, is this, or do we have the moral authority <laughs> on, on this subject, on this topic? You know, is this bringing, you know, uh, a, a better, you know, fulfillment and accessibility for the people who I care about in the community at large this is helping me and, and others in, in, in a way. And these are just philosophical sort of, you know, paradigms that, that you, you operate in frameworks, but it can be, you know, sort of used in, in any sort of category, right? Um, so that's, that's one of the things to see the, the, the shift I mean, we're getting to it right now. And what do you think those conversations should look like? When I was explaining, bringing the homie to the side, the, 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 the pri- those private, I understand, you know, public, but those private, what would you say is like, okay, I, there, here's is, is need for pushback, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How you go about those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think people need to, there's different modes people have as well. Um, and it sounds like you've probably felt that, and I can imagine interacting in DC as well. There's certain mm-hmm. things where, depending on the context of where I'm talking, and again, even, even trying to, you know, I, I go into these podcasts and just try to be open and real and honest and talk. Um, but also understanding, you know, I want this to try to be a wide audience as well. I want to be mm-hmm. me. I want the guests to be them. When I try to appeal to a wider audience, so you know how how far down do I go? How you know th- that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Nah. So I try I not you, to. I, you, I, d- I try mm-hmm. not to self censor, but I think we always do a little right. bit, right? So there's different there's different modes. It depends on the context. You have what you say at work. You have what you say with your family and friends. You have what you say 
um, I've tried to genuinely just disengage on, on Twitter, to be honest. I'm mainly on Noster. I think what helps is it's a smaller community. I feel like I can be a bit more myself and Twitter and algorithms and all these things are really just fanning the yeah. flames. And I think it's it preying on something that humans, humans have lived most of our lives without this social media thing. So mm -hmm. I think whatever's happening with the algorithm, the algorithm with social media and with our brains, it's ripe for just the worst things, right? And I don't want to discredit yeah, the good flames. things that social mm -hmm. media have, have done for communities that need it, for movements. People reference the Arab Spring, which, which mostly occurred on mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter, like different things like this, huge, huge upside. But also the, the clickbait, the fanning of the flames, all of these different things, right? But we go to two extremes. Mm -hmm. You go back to freedom of speech and people are like, oh, we need content moderation to ob oblivion, right? And one of my personal philosophies. And again, I say this, you know, me becoming a Bitcoiner did not water down my progressive values. It did not water down my, my left views and, and this sort of thing or mm -hmm. any of the things I deeply cared about. It made me think about things maybe in a different way. But even before this, one of my thoughts was, you know, people talk a lot about like previously wanting to censor Trump or wanting to censor whoever they, they might not like, right, from the political left. There's, first of all, it's not easy. There's not a black and white answer, right? There can't be complete content, you know, censoring and complete, you know, not, not having no moderation content. But I will say us ignoring that people have certain views and thoughts does not mean they don't exist. So mm -hmm. part of my view as well, I don't know if I a hundred percent believe this is like, let's get it out there. Like say right. your views and there are consequences. If you say something that the general public views as insane and disgusting, that's insane and disgusting. Yeah. We shouldn't say, let's not have them say that. Because then that just kind of covers up things. And that's what's happening today. We're seeing movements bellow up. We're seeing thing, things happen. People will say, how, how did Trump become president? Did, did we create this? Did Trump create what we're seeing now? And obviously, it's so complicated throughout history. But I say, get it out there in the open. Um, let's have conversations. And let's have a bit of democratic thought and interaction about this, right? And trust people. And I think the problem is a lot of people don't trust people like government will not trust people to dictate how to live their own lives. So they say, well, we're going to, we're going to say you can and can't do this. Right. Or on Twitter, we're going to say you can and can't do this. We're going to ban this. So again, not to go too far right. down that, but yeah. no, get I, it up I, in the open. I think you agree. The free speech principle though is, um, I mean, both sides do it in different ways. And the reason I talk about the left a lot is because ideally that is the audience we're speaking to. Um, and ideally I think, there's so many good things, like you mentioned, that mm. historically came from the left, right? Opposition mm. to endless wars, opposition mm. to those that wanted to crush on free speech in the most silly ways that we would look back on burning books and, you know, mm. crushing CDs, whether it was from religious communities or for mainstream Republicans at the time for saying like the F word or, or whatever, mm. um, silly, silly things, the N word, all of this different stuff, right? And deciding mm. these things. Um, so I, I think there's much more the left could be doing and it it's straight at some point. And that I'm curious your your thoughts on when and why that happened. Um I I think what what I'd notice, and obviously I'm just one individual just observing, right? Um 20, you know, 2014, 15, 16, that 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 era. Um, cause I remember growing up, you know, as, as a kid and 
my my parents, mom, like she was in college in the seventies, like seventies fro. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, and this is the first generation of like black Americans going to higher education. She was constantly the one in the classroom <laughs> out of out of few, right? And this was a, a direct result after the civil rights movement that uh, progressives, liberals fought so incredibly hard for. Um, and so just growing up in that, that, that household and, and understanding uh, history, the historical context of, of America, um, it, it seemed that, you know, when, you know, the war comes out, like, it was just like, hey, no, what, wait, what's happening? Like, the progressive voice would say, like, whoa, okay, let me, let me get this right. So we're going out as weapons of destruction, okay? There, there's no real intel of this, and we're going to give uh, our defense contractors, uh, you know, these contracts and agreements uh, to sell uh, weapons and, and, and bomb an entire, you know, <laughs> country, and then pay in defense contractors to rebuild those same areas. Mm. Like, yeah. hold up. And sweet deal for them. <laughs> like, they ride into retirement Let's real take nicely. A pause. Like, that is an amazing business model. I would love mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah. <laughs> build yeah. and destroy, build and destroy. And I get paid on both ends. Like, uh, and, and progressives saw that liberal eyes, like we understand it's like, oh, okay. I see Halliburton. I see. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. There's oil. There's, there's different, uh, national, uh, security strategic objectives <laughs> that's, you know, over in, in the Middle East. And we should not be wasting our taxpayer dollars on a, a needless war. And you you take that back to Vietnam. Who were the voices? Who were the voices that that spoke out against this? Who knew was, you know, us, the biggest military uh, force in the world of all human civilization and the the GOAT Vietnam? (laughs) Come on. Come on. So that instinct to start percolating Again, and we look at um, existing conditions and, and, and what you know we're looking at today, right? And have that same eye of examination. And, and today, and, and somehow that flips. So as I was saying, like freedom of speech, you know, old school hip hop, gangster rap and all that, it was like, hey, give them a right to say what they <laughs> say. This is a land of the free. This is Americans, okay? And and Black comedians, you know, being out like Richard Pryor. Oh, I was going to say Richard Pryor. You're talking about <laughs> 70s, man. You know, yeah. protecting these voices. Protect, you don't have to agree, but a person should have the right to, to voice it. And another person has the right to say, I disagree with that. And then the public square will uh, decide together, <laughs> like, oh, you know, Person A has, has a better argument. Oh, actually, person B, you know, and there, there's there's holes, and then person B's idea descends and dives into, <laughs> you know, obscurity. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. That's how we work out what are the good ideas and bad ideas. We have to say and we have to express them. And then when a bunch of people's like, man, that's stupid as hell. All right. <laughs> it's like, oh, my bad. All right. Oh, let me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I mean, fine. you have to do it. You have to do it personally. You have to do it. Yeah, like I'm a big proponent. Um, like even with my family, I try to be honest with them, right? Some of my views have changed and evolved over time from my very historically conservative Christian family. I have had open and honest conversations with them about that. And we've, we've fought, we've engaged, we figured it out. We've moved on. I think people need to do that in their personal lives. I think people, we need to do that as a nation. And it's one of the hardest things to do. And, and one thing that I want to try to hit home about, mm -hmm. whether it's Bitcoin, that it branches out into everything is, you know, I want the left and progressives to know what we're talking about is not crazy or radical, right? Freedom of speech or having these conversations or saying, let's, let's get thought out there. Let's get ideas out. Now, there's a difference between recklessly hurtful and harmful right. and hateful. Um, and again, that's another tricky slope. Do you allow hateful free speech, like all of these different things? Again, it kind of illuminates maybe that person's a hateful person and shouldn't be in that position or that platform they are or different things like that, right? There's certain incitements of violence. That's a very difficult one to navigate, right? Mm -hmm. There are some right. things that it's tricky and those things are, are real. So I'm not advocating for that, but I don't know when exactly. And honestly, in terms of the metaphor of this, you know, I, I don't know that I would agree with him on everything, but shout out to Matt O'Dell talking mm -hmm. about technology and censorship and talking about slippery slope of whether it's Twitter, whether it's, whether it's Bitcoin, Noster, these kind of things, it doesn't happen like overnight. It happens right. slowly. And then all of a sudden we did get to a place gradually where society, we have granted, yeah, gradually then suddenly we at a societal level have given permission to companies, governments, whatever to, to dictate and decide how folks are going to live rather than having that be bottom up. There has to be some sort of relationship and we can have another conversation about what, what is the appropriate level and size and scope of government. Mm. But it used to be more bottom up in terms of like, let's dictate and decide how our local community is going to run, how our state mm. is going to run, how our nation is going to run in global context. That's uh, different conversations, but mm -hmm. I can only focus on the U.S. That's what I mainly right. know. Mm. And I, I, that, has, that has flipped to where leaders have, whether ill intent or not, decided, well, we're going to decide, right? And, and again, a part of that was ramped up. People have different thoughts on this, possibly during COVID, right? Okay, this is how we're going to handle emergencies. This is how we're going to handle dissemination of information, those kind of things. Personally, and I say this from the left, I swear, I don't think that was great. And maybe the, the best way to handle that, right? Um, again, regardless of intention. So I don't know when that was decided. But we have seen that slippery slope of things are not really decided by the populace anymore. It's decided by a few folks at the top, whether it's financially, right. uh, whether it's how we govern ourselves or how we live our lives. And I, from a progressive angle and from a left angle of wanting people to live as freely as possible and being whoever they want to be, I am very, very concerned about that and disturbed by that. I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, and I look at it much less from a left and, and right paradigm. And I think it's turning 
is shifting. There's there's a cultural shift that we're in the midst of, and between uh, centralized, established networks or decentralized, open networks, right? And both like the quadrants, you know, <laughs> you can have, you know sort of left and right in, in both categories, so decentralized or established institutions, right? Um, and I, I think that goes into the voices that we see today, where it is starting to, is almost uh, like th- through the media, it's just like we're, we're, there's a, a breakthrough of independence and legacy institutional established voices, right? And now independent, <laughs> whether it's on podcasts, media, um, the, the ones who are influencing the conversations are those independent actors now. Uh, and that's growing. That's growing. You don't, like, you don't understand where culture's at if, you know, I, I won't, <laughs> I, I was going to drop name, but it's just like, like know where the, the, the culture is moving. It's not going to be on established mainstream outlets. That's not where the discussion is, is truly happening. And, and then now because we can't block that information, we can't go into a person's phone and tell them, okay, what podcast you listen to or what YouTube or what videos and what, no, it's, it's the freedom, it's the democratization of information. Right. And so those incumbent, you know, a powers who had a, a monopoly on on certain narratives, they, they're slowly sort of witnessing where we're in that transition where that that power, that influence means less and less. And then it's like the last gas, you know, <laughs> of like, no, control of the narrative is just like, OK, but there's, you know, three podcasts, four YouTubes. Uh, segment that does deep dive for a PhD level <laughs> and showing you in how all of the ways that you're incorrect and misinformed. No, we're not buying it. We're not buying it. And it, you know that 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 is the conversation to to break it, <laughs> break the spell. Because at this point, and you 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 mentioned to me before, it's like, oh man, he's pretty direct. It's just like, we're, we're at that moment now. We're at that moment that we're, we're no longer kidding ourselves. We're, we're no longer kidding ourselves when it, it, it comes to established narratives or concepts or ideas that we know internally is like, that just does not connect. It's, it's something to this. I, I feel like it's something behind. Uh, behind this. And it's it's the bravery. If anything that, you know, just talking with you, meeting with you and the, the conversations that, that I have amongst, it's like, okay, we can go into CBDCs, the digital yuan, you know, the, the geopolitical uh, sort of arena and domestically, you know, savings on, on remittance and, and a lightning network. We can get into all those territories. And if we have time, you know, you ask what we can go into that. But I, it's, it's bravery. Have the courage. Have the courage <laughs> to speak truth and say it out loud. And 
the result is the result. But enough people speak the truth that stops our path down <laughs> tyranny. <laughs> you know, um, the last thing I, I, I'll mention because you, you're talking about, you know, um, these authoritative, you know, powers and just that's consolidating uh, control, right? And how this is not sci-fi. I mean, w- one of the, the the portions in, in in the book that we're that we're writing and is actually a working title. Okay, so yeah, I'm so uh, jealous you're like looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just I want I want to read it real quick because yeah. I'll be sure to shout yeah. it out at the end again. Sure, but sure. can you can you touch on it? What you can, but in terms of like who's working on it? You know, you had mentioned your your chapter is titled Bitcoin and Empowerment, or that's kind of the focus of it. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So yeah. So so mention what you yeah, can yeah. about the book. Cool. Yeah. Cool. 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 Yeah. Just really briefly, um, Kyle Schnepps uh, is director of policy foundry. Uh, Matthew Pines, uh, this is a fellow at Bitcoin Policy Institute on yeah. colleagues. I'd be interested to get Matt Pines on here as well. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's some to... people that yourself, um, Lynn Alden's going to be joining me later awesome. this month, awesome. once this episode. There's some people that they have their focus areas, but you ask them the right questions <laughs> and they're like, like Renaissance people. The yeah. the amount of wealth, obviously, Matt Pines talks about, oh. you, you know, UFOs, aliens, security. that kind of stuff, oh, even on, on Peter's <laughs> na- national security. But yeah. I just mean the wealth of knowledge from some of these people that I, one thing I hope as well, I want to be a podcast where people enjoy coming on and have fun, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many Bitcoin podcasts in, in the world. And I'm not saying, oh, my gosh, we're the best and different in this, this mm-hmm. way. It's more like. Listen, there's a lack of progressive voices in the Bitcoin space, period. That, that's just a fact. But also, you can come on and we don't have to talk about the same points that you talked about on those other five podcasts, right? right, that, right, right. that information's there yeah. about CBDC. It's like, I will, I will gladly send out information on the dangers of these things and things like that. But having these kind of conversations, revisiting what progressive means and why we're fighting for these things is, is really important. So anyway, yes, Kyle Schnapps, excellent. Matt Pines. Yeah, Lee Bratcher, Alex Brandt. So it's from uh, the book analysis is is looking at Bitcoin's impact on U.S. national security interests, right? So uh, you know we have former government officials, cybersecurity uh, analysts, um, and uh, authors who, who who work in in, in mining um, and. For mine is is interesting because it's you know Kyle reached out and just said your perspective because um, did some work policy work with a uh, foundry uh, when they were having the moratorium in in mm-hmm. New York right okay, yeah. and, and wanting some have some uh, voices from you know um, BBB you know and to to write and, and show what sort of possibilities this enables, right, um, for, you know, financial access. Um, and so I, I think my role, like, because I, I, I see a lot more technical uh, folks, uh, and I'm just plainly, <laughs> this is the historical context to why alternatives are greatly needed, right? 
So it's giving a, a history lesson. So we can do the technicals, okay, but understand the history lessons of the oppressive nature of centralized institutions. And let's go year by year. <laughs> and then look at the, the the alternatives to that. And we talked about, you know, uh, proof of stake, DeFi, um, and, and CBDCs. And, you know, with proof of stake, the, the beauty of proof of work is, is in its title. It's proof of work, right? It works on democratic consensus, meaning that no matter how much Bitcoin, if you're a node validator, no matter how much Bitcoin that you personally own, it does not change your amount of decision-making power on the network. That is a powerful concept. Right? Um, it, and shout out to the block size wars, which I just actually mm-hmm. read and finished awesome. <laughs> that I hadn't yeah. read before. I, I mean, I knew the history of it and, and what occurred and the decisions that were made, but you know, giving the nodes and validators and the people the ultimate say in in Bitcoin. That's a that's a cool history lesson from Bitcoin as well. Right. And looking at again you know, systems where let's say this is the nuance that doesn't really, you know, get to the surface often, uh, looking at the consensus mechanism of proof of stake that over time is designed in a way that sort of compounds wealth over time. You know, one is a high barrier of entry. So we're looking at economic empowerment. You know, for example, you need, you know, 32 ETH to become a, a validator. And that at the time, uh, this conversation is around whatever, $55,000. Like <laughs> most Americans don't have, you know, $1,000 in their savings for an emergency, <laughs> you know? So who are the people who can become valida- uh, validators in that sort of network? Right? And, and it's based on a, a model that those who have more stake in the protocol has a higher chance of receiving a block reward, which increases further their stake, which then increases their, t- it, it becomes self-perpetuating. Um, and, and there's different, and you know, I'm saying this for the technical uh, programmers, you know, the, the, like the coin age selection is, uh, there's different methods to try to mitigate uh, the, exacerbation of inequality in the network, but it's a, as you were saying, it's a a central sort of tuning the knob down, Um, but it's still- It's a replication of current systems metaphorically. Um, And again, I'm not not one of those people like that sits and tries to fight Ethereum folks or what I've had really good conversations with Ethereum folks. Right. And I think there's some things where I'm like, that's, yeah, I was like, that's a cool concept and company. Right. But like, Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency and what we're here for, what I'm here for, right. that's Bitcoin. So the other stuff, I'm like, cool, do your thing. Like, yeah. You know it, what? It's kind of a, I, it's not even in the realm of, of thought for me, to be honest. Agnostic, man. I, I don't get lottery tickets. I don't go to the casino. You know what I'm saying? I'm not stopping another person going to have a ball. It's, right. It's, right. A, it's a great go time. Go back to freedom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Enjoy, you know, uh, and, and, and I'm not making that exact uh, analogy connect, but, you know, um, it, it has its applications. So, um, and, and, and from 
CBDC and you look at Bitcoin and how I were doing, you know, education, financial literacy uh, seminars. I mean, BBB was came and spoke. Shout out to uh, CJ, the smart guy, uh, Ryan. I think believe Dada was there when they had um, Bitcoin Academy, where Jay Z and um, Jack Dorsey Jack, yeah. uh, came together through Title, and you know created a, a summer last summer for the Marcy Projects, only for Marcy Project um, residents, and have a BBB, you know, teaching financial literacy of you know the digital age, the digital economy, right, and being prepared and not again being left behind, and, and that's a lot of the conversation is saying. Make sure that okay, we have a new unprecedented technology. At every other given point in history, we were the last to partake. Communities, under, underrepresented, marginalized communities were always the last to partake. There was always a asymmetric information and accessibility that was granted to individuals of particular social economic levels, right? And they were able to um, just reap the the benefits early, <laughs> and then later, whatever the scraps you know <laughs> were um, was left. And I'm saying now in today's age where we have open information, open communications, open networks, anyone can find information. There's there's no asymmetric information. It's it's just curious minds and and understanding uh, technology. So so pushing that. Hey, this is the moment now. This is the new because we're preparing for the uh, digital ecosystem, digital economy. And what does that look like? Okay, well let's look into what uh, what are the Criteria of CBDC, okay, stable coins. What's the MICA they're doing? Okay, they're starting regulations in the, the EU. Oh, this is a real thing. Oh, BlackRock, you know, sends an application for an ETF. Oh, okay. Then a month later, two months later, KPMG says that uh, Bitcoin can offer, you know, uh, sort of grid balance and reduce mm-hmm. greenhouse gas. Okay. Oh, yep. okay. Shout out Daniel Batten. If people have not <laughs> looked into Daniel Batten's resources, we had a spaces with him uh, recently. So anyway, shout out to him because he's a huge voice for things like that and the environment. Right. Lighting. All of these come together. All of these come together. Um, and I, I just uh, I just believe it's, it's just incredibly important now with just the open access and what that means. And Bitcoin... When you look at consensus, okay, when we say consensus, it's like, how are transactions verified, right? If mm-hmm. I send, you know, $10 to you in Bitcoin, who's verifying that this is, you know, a, a valid transaction, right? And the fact is, it's like all individuals who are running the node and these say, oh, who has access to that? That must be the person in this, the tall tower or something like that, locked away in a cage. It's like, no, anyone with the internet, it's, it's open. You can download, you know, from Bitcoin org, um, the, 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 the protocol. And then now you become a validator. 
And so you're one of the people who are checking the transactions to make sure that it's valid and all people have an equal amount of decision-making power in this. So I say it's like in the context of a traditional system, traditional financial system, if my worst enemy is at the levers or, or just happens to be at the, the bank, they can find ways to uh, give me higher interest rates. So it may be, okay, we're going to direct, you know, these predatory loans. And like, if there's a central actor, if there's a central actor and that's your worst enemy, they could set up in a way that is not favorable for you. Um, in which we have seen. When we look at Bitcoin, your worst enemy, they can become a node validator. And the worst that they can do to you is only reinforce your coins on the network, right? The security and your participation on the network. By them participating in their own self-interest, narrow self-interest, it is providing you more participation and accessibility and security of your funds. That's what your worst enemy can do <laughs> by, by being a, a participant in this network. That's what it means. That is the mental shift. And, and, and to have something that exists such as that, because we know the alternative when decision makers have uh, you know uh, small groups of insiders make decisions we, we we see how that can can be used and weaponized that's the weaponization <laughs> the weaponization in the bitcoin protocol is that bitcoin uses humans own narrow self-interest to transcend it right to transcend our uh, self-interest i look at it as like judo where you know you're going through your part, uh, opponent and, and using their momentum to gain an advantage against them so bitcoin is using our own self-interest to provide more accessibility <laughs> and access to other people because the one thing that we can guarantee from another human being is that they're going to work within their self-interest okay cool then let's take that paradigm of you working in your self-interest provides more accessibility and, and freedom to others let's let's see how that network plays out and make it globally accessible and transparent, um, a public ledger, right? Um, and I know that can be uh, a lot, or maybe it's just it's, it's daunting because this is something that's novel, right? Um, but if anything, I mean, I yeah, I think people need to first realize too. You have to. Do you think there's a problem? You know, that's one of the first things. And it's really interesting, a uh, recent episode that came out that it, that I had a chance to sit down with uh, former Governor David Patterson from New York. He awesome. said, leading through the financial crisis, he said, do these people think the current financial system is working? And again, he's he's open to new technologies. He's I've been sending him resources and in communication with his team. He's open to Bitcoin because the one that he did see is like, current system and the way things are and him being African-American from Brooklyn. So yeah. him, his lived experience, his governmental leadership experience, he's like, nobody had any idea what they were doing. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's kind of to the effect of like, 
listen, you know, these problems keep happening. If anyone thinks the current system is working, sure, demonize Bitcoin, okay, whatever. But do you think the current system is working? Because I sure don't. That's what he said. And he has direct leadership experience from the corporate world, from leading and lived experience growing up in Brooklyn and, and going through the transformation of New York. So like, that's the biggest thing is like, can people first stop and say, oh, yeah, there's a problem here in, in their own individual lives or at, at society at large with this system to realize the need for something like Bitcoin. So that that's the first approach is like, do you think there's a problem? Here's why we think there's a problem. Like there is a problem, right? Like whether you see it or not, there there is a problem. It doesn't have to be this way. That's like a first step. And then it's like, okay, here's this thing called Bitcoin <laughs> that can address some of this stuff we're talking about. Interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I think these are the, the conversations and really research, you know, now, you know, in my current position is, is focusing on, right. Um, getting ethnographic research, getting behavioral economists, right. Um, to analyze, examine, study, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, uh, technology um, to to study the impacts on U.S. merchants and small businesses. What is the effect of uh, remittance payments? You know, using Western Union versus you know a alternative system like a Lightning Network. Uh, and and even if there's not the the comparable uh, practical uh, analysis here, the, there's theoretical studies that, okay, this is how much is spent in interchange fees from certain communities, these demographics per year. This is the network fee of this alternative system. How much in savings would these communities have? And the likelihood of, you know, retaining that wealth within uh, communities in America, right? Um, these are the, the studies that, that I hope um, is, is really breaking through. And I'm starting those conversations because uh, a lot of the study, you know, we're, we're getting more of the uh, environmental studies that's coming through. I was just talking to KPMG and all that, the work that Margot and Troy Cross are doing is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, they're ac academics, you know. Um, so getting the numbers right of how much the CO2 versus methane emissions and, you know, um, using flared emissions to, to power uh, Bitcoin mines uh, and then balance the system, like that, 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 those are the studies that's important. And now, the I think the the next or the, the conversation that should be included is getting the social impact from uh, from a demographic level because uh, policymakers look at their constituency who they represent and if forty four percent of people in America uh, are people of color who, who use cryptocurrency okay they that's a vote you know, from their wallet, right? Let's look into it, like the, the, the reasons and why this is manifesting here in, in America um, and see if the research can come into policy, can inform policy 
in a, a mature way and, and make sure those voices are, are at the table. You know, the voices who have stake in this new technology need to be the voices who has influence at the table. And, and, and I think that's a part of a large part of the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. And to, and shout out to black Bitcoin billionaires too. And just these groups and the work you're doing to, to really show, cause there's such a perception issue with, with Bitcoin. Like I said, I think a good amount of Americans, I don't know really anything about it. They're like, Oh, okay. Crypto, or they view it as a certain segment of the population. They hear Ted Cruz talk about it. Right. But then you're saying, no, no, no. Like 44% of like black Americans or marginalized groups or people of color in this country are using crypto compared to 18% or kind of those rough figures, right? And it's hard to parse out what's Bitcoin, what's crypto, but the the underlying reason is kind of similar between crypto. It's like understanding and feeling more safe. Like me personally, if I'm being real with myself, it probably took a while and probably wasn't fully until recently, but I feel much more safe and secure in the Bitcoin I have in hold versus anything else that, that I, that I have in hold any equities, anything in my mm-hmm. bank account, like anything it is a it is a global asset that again not not financial advice i want people to kind of learn and educate themselves but this this global whatever it is money property asset like tool to fight climate change all of these things compared to the us dollar right now are you kidding me and definitely compared to like any sort of like peso or lebanon currency or a- any other imperial currency uh that that france is using like i'm sorry i got to the point where i'm like are you kidding me this is this is the most prized possession in terms of like what i have the most confidence in at this point is is bitcoin where you first get into bitcoin you're like i hope the price goes up i hope it doesn't go down too low and then you're like man this is the most stable thing i'm seeing in our world today and I, that I, I haven't met many people that have been in it long enough that don't arrive at that point <laughs> after a long enough time, um, at, at some point. And some people are more primed to understand that early on than others. Like some of the things you're mentioning, mm-hmm. gift your friend, some Bitcoin. That is the first step in the journey <laughs> yeah. and make it, and make it fun too. And I, I wanted yeah. to mention this earlier. What's really exciting. We're 14 years into Bitcoin. Think about like how easy it is now. And I haven't been around in Bitcoin that long, but I can imagine compared to like 2015, look at now you have lightning wallets that you can download on your iPhone with a click of a button for free and have a lightning node on your phone. So you actually don't have to rely on another phone. It's also built in to the node is on your phone. So you don't have to interact with a separate company's node or have a node on your own, which is also really easy through sites like Umbral that can sell you a prepackaged like little Raspberry Pi that you don't mm-hmm. have to have any technical experience of. Like it's getting easier and easier. Why is that? A, a lot of these developers really care, but also there's financial incentive. So we don't have to rely on people doing the right thing in Bitcoin. That's also the other thing. Like if you want to, and you're motivated by that, that's great, but it's not reliant on it. And like you said, one thing we can count on throughout human history, and I don't want to say it's an overly negative thing. It's just the way the world has been is this Trojan horse theory of like self-motivation is, is key, right? People are, are, are focused on themselves and throughout history, this self-motivation, whether people are fueled by greed to create these companies, whether BlackRock, whatever they're motivated by, this could bring about better solutions for everyone. And for some of these communities we're mentioning, can't really think of any others that are readily available at the same, in the same way. Right. Absolutely. Um, 
And so, so where do we, where do we see things, you know, moving forward? Um, I mean, a lot of, in terms of policy, um, we're looking on the international level that, as I mentioned, Micah, like um, in the EU, having um, cryptocurrency regulations, um, Hong Kong is, is really uh, pushing this, this, you know, Dubai to Saudi Arabia. And, um, and there's still a, a hesitance. There's a couple of, of, of bills that, you know, committees are, are, are passing through and, and just getting through Congress um, in, in many different ways. I mean, the financial innovation and technology for the 21st Century Act, which is quite a mouthful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Always is. Yeah. So, I mean, but it's really just trying to offer clear rules for the SEC and the CFTC um, involvement. You know, what is this security? Um, uh, what's a commodity? Um, and introduces rules for token issuance. And there's about, you know, blockchain regulatory uh, certainty act, um, I, you know, stable coin uh, legislation. Um, so these are things that five years ago, because I was still in Bitcoin, wasn't seriously on the table. Um, and now, uh, you know, creating infrastructure, cl creating clear definitions. Um, Congress is, you know, working on, you know, setting up the, the rules of the road and, and the policy frameworks. Um, you know, moving forward, I mean, we're coming up to, to election year. 2024, you know, <laughs> so that's when, uh, you know, all, you know, you know, Congress just sort of tightens up uh, and it gets a little harder to, to pass uh, things. But I think that is uh, the next step of acceptability is it's, you know, the, you know, the committees pushing, you know, bill stable coin um, regulatory acts and, and defining for our, our federal agencies, uh, what is the, the frameworks of blockchain technology, of cryptocurrency, of Bitcoin? And, you know, and the viewpoint of the SEC, you know, Bitcoin is, is a commodity, right? So in this right. discussion, Bitcoin is kind of left out, um, but- Yeah, um, and in the legislation, whether we like it or not, you know, they, they don't have enough time or resources also to the mental capacity. Any legislation is typically, typically crypto legislation. Yeah, absolutely. They're not maybe yeah. at an individual state mining, you know, level like Dennis Porter's work and talking about that, they're passing some proof of work, mining bills, things like that. But federal legislation, that first step they're they're thinking of like crypto regulation and yeah, the SEC is said Bitcoin is a commodity. Maybe they're looking at others as commodities, but yeah, there's not, yeah. For people to understand, you know, this, crypto legislation, you know, whatever people's feelings about it. That's just how DC approaches it at, at the moment. Um, that might change at some point. I anticipate it will. But for now, that's the, the first step. Yeah. And even for Bitcoiners who are not so interested in, in, in crypto, uh, this matters, right? Because it, yeah. it sort of affects the on and off ramps <laughs> of, you know, yep. re re receiving and, and how do you custody, self-custody, like that, that's another act of the right to self-custody. Um, yeah, so, so all of these, you know, these bills that's being introduced uh, still affects even the, the pure Bitcoiner, you know, 
Um, mm. So the, the whole ecosystem. Um, but what's positive to see is that there there's movement and there has been you know bipartisan um, sort of agreement and, and collaboration. Um, so that that is starting slow, um, but you know that, those are some of the things to look forward um, in, in the coming you know twenty twenty four. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm already thinking we're going to have to have another conversation at some point. <laughs> this is great. Um, you know, when I think it'd be fun drops. to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> I have to do some some live conversations as well. Get some folks involved, maybe about some of your thoughts on you know upcoming political cycle and and all of these things. But um, you know, before we wrap up, where do you want to send people? Um, is there an anticipated date for the book as of now, or? or yeah. No? So we just. All the authors we got in our, our drafts this month um, going through the editing process, uh, ETA, uh, ETA, but, um, you know, I, I, it's coming soon. It's, it's coming soon. That's Looking exciting. At yeah. Maybe fall, fall. Yeah. So, Man, yeah. we've got, we've got you guys, we've got the Bitcoin philosophers doing some stuff. We've got Lynn Alden with the book. It, it's going to be a big wave of um, great resources for people. So, you know, we'll keep in touch and I'll make sure to keep people posted about, um, you know, when they can get those resources, but, um, anywhere else you want to send people to, um, things like that. Yeah. Um, Twitter, I, you know, I like to protect my energy, so I'm on and off of Twitter, but I'm a nature of G, uh, on, on Twitter. Um, you know, Bitcoin policy Institute as an advisor there, now assistant director of government relations at, at COSA um, and DM me if you are a social science or you, you're researching societal impact uh, and you have a curiosity about, you know, distributed ledger technology, um, you know, federal, uh, the, the appropriations bill uh, is supporting uh, funding in, in, in this area, right? Um, so in our, and needing this type of analysis and, you know, providing grants. So, um, so I'm working more on the, the, the education, the academic side and making sure this, this research reaches, uh, agencies. So if, you, you know, if researchers, yeah, a quick DM and then, um, see, you know, continue conversation. So that's where I'm focusing on right now. Awesome. Awesome. All right, everyone, go go follow Ian. We'll we'll keep in touch. Um, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I know this was a some episodes are more conversational, go all over the place. Some episodes are really focused on a product or something. I I like them all. Uh, I'm scared. You know, yeah, we, we go back. And yeah, forth. yeah, me too, me too. And hey, I tell in the intro if people have thoughts, they can email me. Um, always open to that. So. Thank you so much, Ian. This was fantastic. And I appreciate you coming on. It was an honor. Thank you, Trey. 